Looking for something new to do in New York? Very soon, the Museum of Food and Drink will be opening a new exhibit, African American, Making America's Table. Listen to Catherine Piccoli, Acting President of the Museum of Food and Drink, here on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. So, welcome everyone. Today, I'm here talking to Catherine Pickley, who is the new executive director of the Museum of Food and Drink in New York. So welcome. Thank you for having me, Liz. I'm really excited to be here with you today. So tell us a little bit about MOFAD's history, how it got started, and then we can move into what's up today. Mm -hmm. Sure. So MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, was founded by Dave Arnold. He's sort of like a food tech wizard. He started the food technology program at the French Culinary Institute. He is a mixologist. He's written, you know, several books about cocktails as well as had several bars here in New York and, you know, creates all sorts of kitchen gadgets <laughs> to bring sort of more of these like scientific methods to your home cooking, you know, like a countertop centrifuge and things like that. Um, a popcorn machine of ideas. Yeah, he's one of those people that has so many great ideas and a lot of things going on. And it's exciting to be part of that world and see his mind at work and be able to um, work with him and bring a lot of these ideas to life at MoFAD. So when did MOFAD really materialize, let's say, as opposed to just being an idea? Yeah, so in 2013 was when we really first got our start. There was a Kickstarter to help fund our first exhibition, which was called Boom, The Puffin Gun and the Rise of Cereal. And that took, you know, like a 1930s cereal machine, which is basically a giant pressure cooker, kind of a cereal cannon. <laughs> and we re rebuilt it and took it around New York City to a number of outdoor festivals and taught the history of cereal and cereal production in the U.S. while also blowing up, <laughs> boom, booming cereal, <laughs> and making sure that everybody who came to see it also got to, to taste that food. You know, that's really what we're trying to do at MoFAD is allow folks a chance to literally digest the information that they're learning. So what grains did you use with that machine? Let's see. We used a lot of different grains. I think we probably puffed corn. I know we puffed a number of different heritage grains, amaranth, quinoa, things like that. We tried puffing pasta, just a bunch of, a bunch of things. <laughs> and then we had some chefs make some, um, give us recipes for some blends, you know, that then once we scooped out the, the puffed grains, we put them in a cement mixer, actually clean, obviously, with these spice <laughs> blends so that, yeah, everybody could taste. 
<laughs> the chicks mix of your product. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're always doing sort of zany things like that at MoFad, you know, trying to get people to you know, not only think more deeply about food system, our food system and food production, but also, you know, to really enjoy themselves and come together and eat together. You know, that's what we, we do. You do as well, right? We bring people together around food. Right. So, okay. After that beginning, then mm-hmm. what happened? Yeah. So for a few years, we were, we were mobile. We had the puffing gun and we did programming around the city and then in 2015, we opened our first space in, in Williamsburg, in Brooklyn, New York, called MoFab Lab. And it was really sort of our, uh, you know, test your kitchen, if you yeah. will. Yes, our incubator to test out our idea. You know, what does it look like to be a food museum? How do we, how do, we do that on the scale that, um, that we want? And so that... 5,000 square foot warehouse space really became our testing ground. And we piloted a number of of exhibitions there. Our first major exhibition in lab was called Flavor, Making It and Faking It, and was all about um, the history and technology behind the flavor industry. So on that box of cereal, when it says flavor is added, natural or artificial, you know, what does that mean? Who makes flavors? What is a flavor? How, How do we physiologically and neurologically, you know, experience flavor in our own brains and our own bodies. Um, And with that, you know, we had, we made uh, smell machines or smell sense as we called them. So you could press a button and smell one of these flavor chemicals that are added to your food individually or press a number of buttons and smell them together to make sort of a recipe as well as we created tasting tablets to help people understand sort of the difference between the way smell works uh, as we experience flavor and the way taste works as we experience flavor. So you could, you know, have an MSG tablet, or we had one experience where you could, uh, two tasting tablets, um, and these were all dispensed from like retrofitted gumball machines, you know, like crank, 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 and out pops your little tablet. Um, You could taste the difference between... um, Uh, vanilla. So, uh, you know, natural vanilla powder from a vanilla bean, um, and then from artificial vanillin, and sort of like try to understand the difference between, you know, what those taste, what the flavor is, uh, the flavor profiles of those are. Um, And again, just trying to get people to think more deeply, not coming down on, on one side or the other about how, um, you know, about the flavor industry, but trying to get people to, you know, think more deeply about the foods, the things that are in our food. And we actually found that, um, you know, folks on both sides of the issue were very excited by our exhibition. We had flavorists saying, thank you for representing so well what we what we do, our work. Um, and we had folks coming in who said, you know, artificial flavors are bad. Thank you for, for, for showing that. And it's like, well, I don't know that we did, but sure. You know, so I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, so that was our first major exhibition at lab. Our second major exhibition, uh, was called Chow making the Chinese American restaurant. And that really explored, um, the rise of the Chinese American restaurant in the US during the period of Chinese exclusion. So, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed in 1882. 
and really excludes Chinese people and eventually people from all over Asia from entering um, the U.S. really until the 1960s. And so at the same time, you have the Chinese American restaurant, you know, sort of moving all across the country and becoming part of our culinary zeitgeist and really trying to understand that how that works during this period of exclusion and how Chinese American restaurants and Chinese American restaurant cuisine becomes, you know, so much a part of our, of our everyday lives. You know, Jennifer A. Lee wrote in Fortune Cookie Chronicles, it's more American than apple pie, right? You know, so we all have our favorite takeout place. So where did that, where did that cuisine come from? Who makes that? How can we learn that history, but also about Walk cooking in a restaurant, right? Because people, not many Americans are cooking uh, at walks on walks at home because of stove design and things like mm-hmm. that. But you know, what does walk hay mean? What are the what are those important sort of culinary pieces of the Chinese American restaurant as well? Um, and then we've had a number of smaller gallery shows at Lab Feasts and Festivals, which looked at you know festival foods, celebratory foods. We had a pop up with a UK-based artist, um, Muhammad Ali, called Knights of the Raj, New York City, um, that looked at, similar to Chow, um, Bangladeshi immigrants to mm-hmm. New York City and the rise of, well, in, <laughs> in the UK, you know, he showed really the rise of curry culture um, in Birmingham, which is where he's from, but also looking at that in, in our space, looking at um, Bangladeshi immigrants to the U.S. and curry houses in in New York. So um, we've done a number of cool things. We have a lot more ideas. I'm really trying to get a chickens exhibition off of the ground. Ideas, right? Yes, never <laughs> yeah. out of ideas. That's never, never a problem. Never. Yeah. <laughs> so now that we're in um, in well, I was going to ask you about COVID, but I guess I might as well go there. So now we're in COVID mm-hmm. and everybody's in, um, depending on where in the country you are, in different degrees of isolation and uh, closures and things like that. So what's up now? What are you doing to kind of keep yourself out there, you know? Well, we actually were gearing up for our next major exhibition and which was nearly complete when we had to shut down because of COVID back in March. I'll come back to that. But, um, yeah, yeah you know, I definitely want to come back to that. Yes, what we were, um, what we did um, to deal with COVID was we, um, we started moving everything online um, and primarily we've moved our programming, our public programming for adults online. We do a number of Zoom programs, typically one a week. I think we have six coming up in November, which is a little bit wild. Um, (laughs) But so, you know, for those, what we do is we do our usual, you know, public programming. We bring together a panel of experts to talk about a topic. And that's gone really well for us, actually. We're finding that folks who couldn't necessarily join us in person before can now join us from around the country and even around the world. And as we've expanded our online programming, we've added in, you know, ingredient boxes because again, you know, we want everybody to be able to eat together. So for example, last night we had an oyster soiree and we had um, uh, some folks 
We had Ben Harney from the Mother Shuckers Project here in New York talk about the history of African Americans as oystermen. Um, we had uh, folks talk about the Japanese Americans in the Pacific Northwest who work in oystering. And then we worked with somebody in Louisiana, actually, to ship oysters to participants around the country so that they could shuck oysters at home and slurp along with us as we, you know, uh, as Ben did a demo and we talked more um, about oyster history in, in the U.S. Yeah, sounds like, sounds like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So I, I firmly believe that rising tides float all boats. Mm-hmm. And I'm always excited when there's a food museum somewhere because the more of us there are, the more will be front of mind and people will think about food museums and places to visit when they're traveling and all of that sort of thing. Um, So I'm very excited about your next exhibit. So what's up with it? Tell us what it is and is it going to travel or is it going to um, sort of just be uh, over when it's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our upcoming exhibition is called African Slash American, Making the Nation's Table. And it's all about uh, the over 400 years of uh, contributions by African Americans to our shared culinary landscape. Um, we are really looking at all of the ways that um, African Americans and Afri- African ingredients even have, you know, had such a a major impact on the way that we eat and drink in this country. Um, And so the plan was to open that in April of 2020. Obviously that didn't happen. We're still uh, working on uh, a 2021 opening and fundraising for that and moving that forward. And we do hope to travel the exhibition that was in the initial plan. And we do hope to do that as well after an initial six month run here in New York. But yeah, it's where is it going to open? In New York, we uh, we partnered with the Africa Center, mm-hmm. which is on the northeast corner of Central Park, to host this exhibition in their brand new gallery space. And so, tell us about the the some of the special artifacts that you mm-hmm. have in the exhibit. Yeah, so um, the exhibition starts with something that we call the Legacy Quilt. It is. Um, 14 feet tall by about 28 feet wide. Um, We worked with some amazing artisans, um, quilting artists at the Harlem Harlem Needle Arts um, here in New York. We worked with Adrian Franks, who's an amazing graphic designer, and Osai Endelin, who's an amazing writer, um, to put together this layered storytelling quilt. So there are 406 quilt blocks on this quilt, and each one represents an African-American contribution to American cuisine. So we have uh, 400 folks on this quilt, and we have six blank quilt blocks to represent all the stories that we don't know, all of the people that, you know, were left out of history, um, or whose stories we haven't uncovered yet. And so this is really the thesis of our exhibition, really showing the the breadth and the wide range of contributions um, to to our culinary landscape. Um, It's a really beautiful piece to see in person. Um, 
you can also see it online even now at legacyquiltproject.mofad.org. But to see it in person is, is really, really stunning. And to see all of the amazing work that all, everybody who worked on it um, put into it. Um, you know, we have stories uh, we just, we feature a quilt block every week. So our, our featured quilt block this week is Mr. Okra. Um, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. So we have, you know, street vendors on, on there. We have, uh, mixologists, we have, um, groups of people, African-American cowboys. We have a lot of different food stories represented on this quilt. The other big exciting exhibit that we have as part of this, um, is the Ebony Magazine Test Kitchen from, <laughs> from the Johnson Publishing Company building in Chicago. That building was turned into condos a few years ago and a preservation organization in Chicago called Landmarks Illinois was able to get their hands on this kitchen before it was torn out. And it is amazing, beautiful, psychedelic, you know, designed in 1971, swirly orange, green, purple pattern. Um, so aside from being um, just a really cool piece of design and a cool kitchen to look at and, and be in, you know, it's also really important. Ebony Magazine it has been the sort of like heart of the African-American publishing world since the 50s. And their food section, um, first led by Frida DeKnight and then by Sharla Draper and Charlotte Lyons really was very important. You know, folks have told me that, you know, if you were African American, your mom was cooking recipes out of ebony. And so this was the kitchen where those recipes were being tested, um, where those spreads were being photographed, where all of that was, was happening. And what we've learned from um, two of the former food editors, Sharla Draper and Charlotte Lyons, is that really uh, like in any home, um, that kitchen was the hub of the building, really the heart of the building. You know, it was on the same floor as the, as the cafeteria, but if you were a politician, a celebrity, anybody coming through to see the Ebony offices, you inevitably wound up in the kitchen um, just hanging out, having some coffee, eating whatever they were t trusting out that day. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited for that. We have refurbished it, recreated it. We expanded one side a little bit so that people can actually walk through and experience the kitchen from the inside and all of the cool gadgets. There's this great is it, night is it actually installed or is it just placed there? In other words, is mm. the, does everything work? Like is the electricity connected so the refrigerator is on? Um, the, it's just placed there. So it's not a working kitchen right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But everything does work. So you could make it? You could. You could. Everything does work. We, <laughs> there's this amazing piece in there uh, called the Foodmatic, um, which was, you know, this was a very state of the art kitchen um, at its, at the time. And so this is a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a, it pops up out of the counter um, and it has a number of attachments that are in, in the drawers underneath, right? So it pops up. You can attach your meat grinding attachment. Uh, you can attach your ice cream maker. You can attach your coffee grinder and your percolator. You can attach all of these things. And it's a sort of, you know, all-in-one um, piece. And we learned about it when, uh, you know, we brought the kitchen back to New York. And so we did make sure that we, we have a working unit of that and a lot of different attachments that we can switch out and show people because that's, 
Um, you know, as a food nerd, like that's pretty wild. That's really cool to see. Um, and if you're a gadget nerd, even if you don't care about yes. food, that's a cool thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so do you have any sort of planned opening date? Um, um, I know you some... can't know for sure because we don't know what's happening right now, but are you, are, are you just leaving it totally open? We, we have an internal target date that we're not sharing quite okay, yet. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, okay. And then um, um, it, it's going to be at the Africa Center. So um, is it open when the Africa Center is open or is it going to have separate hours? How is that going to work? Yeah, so we have, uh, this gallery has its own separate entrance, and we, um, initially our plans were to be open six days a week, you know, we're sort of feeling this out with everything with COVID, obviously, so we'll, you know, we'll be open several days a week <laughs> for folks to, to come in and, and see, you know, right now in New York, um, museums are at 25% capacity, so, you know, we'll have limited um, people being able to walk through and, and experience and eat with us or take food out. Um, and, but yeah, we, we're excited. I, I mean, I think everybody understands uh, right now. So mm -hmm. just work with what you've got. And, mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, that's the best anybody can do. And so you're anticipating that your exhibit would be open for six months after mm -hmm. it opens? Yes. Okay. So people have six months to get to New York and to get to New York. And then, um, and then, like I said, our plan is to travel it around the country. Um, after that, again, of course, pending COVID and everything else, but uh, that is something that we want to do. We've um, discussed traveling our exhibitions in the past. Um, and we feel this one is particularly important to get out and about and around the country and especially to see this amazing ebony test kitchen um, we really want to get that out for people to see it yeah it sounds like it has a lot of pizzazz how many square feet is the exhibit approximately um i think it's about four thousand square yeah. feet mm -hmm. okay well that sounds very very exciting so i'm I'm looking forward. I've been looking forward to it. I've I've gone up to see every one of your exhibits, so you. uh, I I will be there when it's <laughs> open. <laughs> so tell me what kind of plans besides this? And I know everybody is just making plans without knowing where we're going and what direction is happening. What kind of plans are there for MoFad right now? That is a great question. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot up in the air. What we were hoping to do um, after we left the lab space was to go on to the next phase of our development and, and, um, and find a, a larger space, um, you know, and continue to grow. Um, I think that is still ultimately our goal, um, but you know, I think it might take us a little bit longer right now, um, given, given everything. And our focus will really be on, on uh, African slash American and traveling it and continuing um, to do our programming both for adults and school students um, here in New York, whether in, virtual, in, or in person or virtually. So are you developing educational materials for this exhibit that can be shared with schools so that the children are prepared before they come? 
Absolutely. We do, we have had uh, school group programming with all of our exhibitions and leading tours in person in the museum. Um, so those are in development for in person with this exhibition, as well as we're developing curricula that can go out into the schools as well. And what about like a virtual tour of the museum for those people who can't get out? Does that, does that, I'm not the museum, but the exhibit, mm -hmm. is that planned also? Yeah, so we have a number of um, sort of online components of this exhibition already. Um, the Legacy Quilt Project, like I said, is, is mm -hmm. online. Not only can you view the quilt online, you can submit your own African-American culinary hero for um, a digital sort of community version of this quilt. We have in this exhibition some virtual reality experiences, which we're rethinking and also trying to get distributed online as well. And a number of other experiences that are already sort of like baked into um, viewing online. So now all of that sounds, sounds really, really exciting. I mean, uh, I, just to commiserate with you about not knowing about the future, um, I, I, in, a, in a place that is um, as dependent on tourism as New Orleans is, and I, I'm sure that a lot of your visitors were also tourists, yeah. not everybody, obviously, but there were some, um, it, it feels like you're open and beckoning for people to come, but they're just not there. Mm -hmm. It's it's not that the people wouldn't come, it's just that the people literally are not there. Mm -hmm. And um, as we're, we're watching restaurants struggle and all these um, businesses struggle, not all of them are in the food industry, but the ones that are are the ones that you really see because you know the people. Yes. It's really, it's really, really difficult and it's very hard to make plans for the future. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, restaurants aside, um, I think museums, um, this is really, I mean, this is a reckoning for so many industries, but I think for museums, it's, there's really a question of, you know, how do we do this differently? Obviously we want everybody to come and be in person and hang out with us and see our cool stuff and eat with us. But you know, I've been surprised and excited about the way that people are interacting with us online through our programs, through our social media, even, you know, that there is this hunger, if I may use a food pun, there is this, you know, uh, passion for food and drink education that is obviously out there. You know, people want to learn more about this. They want to talk um, more about this and, and that, you know, it's kind of exciting that we can meet people in their own home um, and have these conversations with them as MOFAD. And so I think regardless of what the future brings for us, we need to consider always having, you know, a virtual presence. I mean, I, I feel the same way. This has kind of given us a time sort of when the world stopped so that you can develop these new skills and new ways of thinking that, will continue on even after the world starts whirling around again. Mm -hmm. And it's actually kind of one of those opportunities that probably over time would have developed, but has been really telescoped into mm -hmm. 
happening really fast. And that's kind of the way, the way I look at it. Um, in my mind, there's a cartoon where everything stops, you know, and this all keeps happening. And then you flip a switch and the world starts again. Mm -hmm. But we just don't know when the flip of the switch is going to happen. Right, right. So is there anything about the future besides obviously the opening of your exhibit and that sort of thing that, that you're really, really looking forward to in terms of next steps for MOFAD? Mm. I'm excited to, I'm just excited to keep having these conversations with people. You know, um, we uh, have really been using this opportunity um, to, to bring people together around this thing that most, hopefully all, but most of us love food, right? And, and using that time then to uncover, you know, the inequities in the food system and really talk through, um, you know, have those hard conversations about the world around us using food and drink as a lens. Um, for me, that's the most compelling part of what we do at MOFAD is saying, you know, come join us, let's sit together, let's eat together, but let's, let's have conversations about, hard conversations about what it means to be an American through food, about, you know, um, how our food is produced, about the choices that we make. To me, that, I mean, that's why I got into <laughs> this, this profession. Um, that's why I studied food. Um, you know, there's this memoir by Annie Dillard, who grew up in Pittsburgh, and she wrote the trilogy that starts with um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And I lived in Pittsburgh for 10 years. I did my undergrad and graduate studies there. And there's this one line from her memoir that sticks with me where she's like, it's just ketchup, right? Pittsburgh, Heinz, all of that. And like, it's it's not just ketchup. There's, there's so much more. This is always how I think about it. Like, what is there behind the Heinz bottle? What are the a million other things that we can talk about. Um, to me, that's that's what's so exciting about food and about what we get to do um, at MoFAD and at food museums and uh, you know food educational experiences around the country and around the world. What what more can we uncover when we just sit down and to think about what we're eating? And I always feel that the more educated not literally educated in a formal way, but the more people are exposed to different gadgets, um, household equipment, um, all of those sorts of things, and see what people ate in other places, mm -hmm. the more they're stimulated to think about their own experience. Mm -hmm. And then often what, what happens is that um, people discover that in their garage, they have this thing that we didn't know what it was, you know, and now we know what it is. And all of those kinds of things I think are, are so important because I've always thought that there's been this huge gap in terms of early thinking about food as scientists, archaeologists, anthropologists, people like that. And all about, you know, hunter-gatherers and all the, the things that needed to happen in order for people to feed themselves. It was really important. You needed food to live, you know, mm -hmm. not, to, not to enjoy yourself. You needed food to live. Mm -hmm. And then there was agriculture. And now museums no longer are focused on these wonderful dioramas showing you 
old fish hooks and uh, things that people like skins that held fluid and all of that sort of thing. It's now all about hierarchy, religion, aesthetics, mm -hmm. all these things that developed and it's like people stopped eating. And so you have this huge gap of time when all of a sudden people literally at least stopped recording some of the food information and all of that. And so it, because it was so ordinary and it had been taken over by this lowest class of people. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't care what they did. All you cared was the product. And so I'm always excited to see that we're uncovering more and more of that lost time um, and what people used to do. I mean, it may be impossible to find a plate from the ninth century because it's destroyed by now and it was not hard fired or is made of wood and it's rotten or whatever. Okay. I can, I can accept that. <laughs> but wouldn't it have been cool if people had been collecting these things all along? Absolutely. It really would have been wonderful. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's one of the, I think for, us, I would assume for most people in the food, food museum world, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Food is so ordinary. It's so every day. Um, even when I was doing my research for my graduate studies, I, I was supposed to interview, you know, an, 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 an older person in my life. And I was asking my grandma about this, this thing that happened every year. She grew up in the West village here in New York and her father worked in the, uh, uh in the train depots in New Jersey and every Easter he would bring home a lamb on the subway and like raise it in the backyard and in their apartment and then slaughter it and then they would have Easter lamb and I was asking her I was really interrogating her about this and she said why do you want to know like it's just a thing that we did like it's not it's just a thing that I'm like grandma we're Italian food is like I don't <laughs> you know that's who we are um and um but yeah that's sort of not to, you know, not to, not to rip on my grandma. I love her very much, but you know, that, that's sort of like, you know, it's just what we did. It's just, it's just this ordinary thing. Why, why do you care so much? Um, you know, I think that that is really exciting to have those conversations too, but it also means that collecting as a museum and finding those objects can be, um, incredibly difficult and, and saying to someone, you know, you're, in the chow is easy, right? A lot of people kept takeout menus, but that takeout menu is important. That's a, an important piece of the historical record. Um, right, those right. Yeah. that utensil that somebody had that they used to make pastry. That's really important. Um, well, what I tell people is, I know you're collecting takeout menus and you keep them in this drawer by the phone on your desk so you can call out for lunch or whatever when you're ready, because eventually they're going to go out of use because the prices change, menus change, whatever. Don't throw them away. Send them to us <laughs> because we have a huge collection of these things. And, and people do, they stick them in some plastic bag or whatever. And then we just get this thing, you know, this mm -hmm. package full of stained and, and bent up and written on, takeout menus. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's what we're looking yes, for. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Catherine, I want to thank you so much for your time and sharing all this really exciting information with us. And I hope that mm, you open up sometime in 2021 and you just let us know so we can let other people know it's about to happen. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Liz Williams.